Welcome to the Neighborhood Church Podcast. We are so thankful that you are listening in. The Neighborhood Church is all about helping people find and follow Jesus. We hope that through these podcasts you are encouraged, that you're inspired, and that you're provided with practical wisdom on how to find and follow Jesus. We hope that you enjoy today's podcast. do you judge your brother or you again why do you regard your brother with contempt for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God for is it is written as I live says the Lord every knee shall bow to me And every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. For the last five or six weeks, we have been in Romans chapter 14 and 15. Some of you, as I have been working my way through these two chapters, have probably been thinking this is really silly, superficial stuff. What kind of Christians want to spend their time thinking about others and them going Sunday shopping? what others are eating. Well, enough trouble figuring out what I want to eat. Silly, superficial stuff. What's Paul even putting this in here for? What a waste of time. Pastor, what a waste of time. Last six weeks spending time on this insignificant, unimportant stuff. But the truth of the matter is there is something much deeper here than whether a Christian can drink alcohol or not. The deep thing here is that eternity is at stake. The deep thing here is that eternity is at stake. Romans 14, verse 15. If because of your food, your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him whom Christ died for. These silly arguments we have in the church 
can destroy people. Eternity is at stake. Romans chapter 14 and verse 20, do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. The work of God matters too much for us to get hung up on all of this silly stuff. Eternity is at stake. Verse 21, it's good not to eat meat or to drink wine or do anything but which your brother stumbles. Verse 22, happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. So the, the instruction here is figure out what you really believe, but you need to figure it out carefully because if you develop convictions that aren't strong and aren't right and aren't healthy, you can actually bring condemnation upon yourself. Eternity is at stake here. Eternity is at stake here. I've told you this story before. Many of you will have heard it. One of my wife's sisters loved Jesus and loved the church. As a teenager, she would take... uh, weekend evenings and she would go sing and minister to the down and outers of Montreal at their, at their uh, suppers that are put on by various community outreaches. She would go and serve the food and then sing to them. She was a part of the church choir as a teenager. But one midweek evening, she went to church to choir practice. And the choir director, who happened to be a pastor, pointed his finger at her and said, Young lady, you get out of here. You know our church does not permit earrings. She just got her ears pierced that day. And she laughed. And she never put her feet in a church again. Not even for family weddings. These silly things we take strong stances on can deeply hurt people and can deeply destroy the work of God. Eternity is at stake. This is not a superficial portion that you've had to endure some preacher talking about. This is deeply significant. This is deeply important. Eternity is at stake. It's been quite a... uh, journey the last 13 months for my wife and I. Last September, a year ago September, Donna's mom passed away and 
I officiated at her service and buried my mother-in-law. In June, Donna's dad died and I officiated at that service and buried my father-in-law and 24 days ago, my mom died and I officiated at that service and buried my mom and last Monday the phone rang at our house and my cousin said, John, could you do our family a big favor? My last living uncle had passed away a week ago Friday and Friday I officiated at his funeral. When you're a young lad and you're attending family Christmas, sitting at a table that seemed to me to go on forever and ever and everyone's talking and everyone's laughing and everyone's telling stories and there's food that just seems to be unending. You have to go out and play ball hockey on the street afterwards to get rid of all the calories. You never think that a time will come when some of those people won't be around anymore. And certainly as an eight or ten-year-old, I never thought that I would be the one speaking at their funeral and officiating and walking the family through the loss. But death is inevitable. Phone my dad when I found out my uncle had passed away because he'd just lost mom 14 days before. And, and I said to dad, how you doing, dad? He said, son, I'm fine. This is just a part of life. It is appointed unto man, Hebrews 9, verse 27. Once, you only get to do it once. It is appointed unto man once to die. And after this comes the judgment. I've done a lot of funerals in the last year. And we talk about death. And we talk about being in heaven and we talk about being with Jesus. We don't talk much about the reality of judgment. It is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment lots of allergies out there. People are allergic to nuts and people are allergic to gluten and people are allergic to lactose and people are allergic to bee stings and people are allergic to cats. The list goes on and on and on. 
and those of us who have allergies have learned the best way to handle them is to just stay away from the things we're allergic to. I fear that in the church we've developed an allergy to the reality and the truth of judgment. And we stay away from it. And because we've stayed away from it, we've declawed God of his power and his authority in our life, and we've declawed scripture of the power of the gospel. The reality is Romans 14 and 15 is speaking to us about issues that are eternal. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I'm going to share with you four questions this afternoon, or is it still morning? It is just turning afternoon. I'm going to share with you four questions this afternoon that we're all going to have to answer at the judgment seat of Christ. And the first question, the first question is, was glorifying God the passion of your life? Was glorifying God the passion of your life? Colossians 3, 23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily. As for the Lord rather than for man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. He who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done and that without partiality. God has no favorites. This, this determination of reward and your inheritance will be impartial. And it will be based on has your life been centered around a wholehearted worship of him? Or has it been all about you? Have you been passionate about glorifying God in your life? Romans chapter 14. And verse 8, if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. It is all about him. It is all about him. My cousin, when asking me to do my uncle's service, talked about going to see her dad in the last days of his life and she was sitting beside his hospital bed. She was visiting him. And then the nurse walked into the room and she just kind of stepped aside from visiting her dad and went to the nurse and said, 
like, how's dad really doing? And they began to, began to talk about my uncle's health. And as they're talking about my uncle's health, uncle's laying in bed. Seven times he raised his hands in worship to God on his deathbed. And the nurse said, should I be worried about that? What's going on there? And my cousin said, no, dad's just having a church moment. But to the very end of his life, he was passionate about his Jesus worshiping him and honoring him and glorifying him. We'll have to answer the question. Have you been passionately glorifying God with your life or has it been centered around you and your desires and your wants more than him. I like this quote from a Scottish theologian of a couple centuries ago named Peter Forsyth. The first duty of every soul is to find not its freedom but its master. And this portion talks, these two chapters talk a lot about <laughs> freedom and liberty. But that's not the real issue. It's not discovering your freedom. It's discovering your master. And only when you discover your master do you discover real freedom. A lot of us think freedom is, is this ability to do whatever we want. You misunderstand freedom. I'm going to give you the clearest, most concise definition of freedom you'll ever hear in your life right now. You ready? You are free when there's nothing in your life you can't say no to. That's when you're free. God wants us free. God wants us free and living lives that are to his glory, his adoration, his praise. Second question. Were you judging and despising others regarding disputable matters? I find Romans 14.10 almost amusing. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, do you regard your brother with contempt? But listen to the solemnness of the end of the verse. The reason we need to stop doing that is because we will all stand before the judgment seat of God.
You find it so easy to be hard on others. Why are you doing that? We are all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. Romans chapter 14 and verse number 12. Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Isn't it amazing? And if it wasn't so amazing, it would be amusing. Isn't it amazing how easy we are on ourselves and so hard we are on others? And we're all going to stand and give account of ourselves before God. And, and we're all going to give account of ourselves before God. And I cannot afford to be anything but merciful because I need to reap the mercy of God. Mercy rejoices, triumphs, is victorious over judgment. Third question. In all of our proofreading, every once in a while we miss something. Did you feel a responsibility for the spiritual heath, spiritual health, and vitality of others? Did you feel a responsibility for the spiritual health and vitality of others? Romans 14 and verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather judge this or determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. We can cause brothers and sisters to stumble, not just by what we do, but by what we don't do. 1927, my grandfather landed in Canada and made his way to Bruderheim, Alberta, 30 miles northeast of Edmonton. Went there because there were already some treasoners there. They helped him get established, but early in his time there, he found out you could get a homestead for $10. And he borrowed $10. He had no money. He'd lost it all when he was dispersed into Siberia came to Canada with absolutely nothing, borrowed $10 to get 160 acres in Newbrook. Newbrook is an hour, 60 miles, not an hour, 60 miles away from Bruderheim. And Grandpa, with a sack of food on his back, 
and a saw in his hand and a hammer traipsed across that 60 miles to some place that probably nobody had ever been before and established the Drisner homestead and single-handedly cut down the logs and built a two-room log cabin. It took them two and a half years to get it done. Went home for the winter in Bruderheim to be with his wife, my grandma Elvina. And in 1931, with a horse pulling a cart with now four kids in it and two adults. Now, my grandmother had to be quite a lady. A cart, six people, four of them preschoolers, with a cow following behind, went on a mosquito-infested 60-mile journey that took them days because they were going through country that a vehicle had never been before. They had to stop and chop down the trees. And they established a home <laughs> in Newbrook, on a homestead in Newbrook, Alberta, and I've got a picture of that two-room log, two room log cabin. I've had it in my study most of the time, and my wife said about four months ago, we need to get that home to remind me of the humble roots and where everything started for us. But I tell all that story to paint this picture. <laughs> my dad and my aunts and uncles would tell the story of Saturday being such a big day because <laughs> they had to go get the big rock, which was the Sunday rock. They had to go get the big rock, and they would carry it into the house and put it in the oven, and they would cook the rock all night Saturday and take it and put it in the middle of the cart, and my grandma... And the kids would sit around the rock to stay warm in the cart ride to church in 30 and 40 below degree weather because being with the people of God in the house of God mattered. And now, 100 years later, 90 years later, oh, it snowed, we have to stay home. And then people come to Jesus and accept him as their Lord and Savior. And we look around a year later and we can't figure out why they're not here anymore. They don't survive because they come like us and they get the impression you come to church every fifth week, sixth week, seventh week, if something more exciting isn't happening, you come to church. And they become like us and they starve on the vine. We cause them to stumble. Did you live a life that felt responsibility for the spiritual vitality and health of others? People watch us. New convert comes to prayer meeting. Pastor said it was important. Walks through the door and there's six people there. And what does he say? 
pastor thinks it's important, but nobody else does. And they don't learn how to pray. Do you feel a responsibility for the spiritual health and vitality of others? Don't say I didn't warn you this was a sober word. Check my watch here. Before I get to point four, I just want to quickly review kind of the five fundamental things that tie into all of this from Romans 14 and verse 15. I'm going to go over them very, very quickly. But we should have learned from Romans 14 these five things. Refrain from judging or condemning believers whose opinions differ from your own. Number two. Refrain from exercising your freedom in ways that would pressure, embolden, or encourage other believers to sin by going against their conscience. Three, remember the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy. The sign of the kingdom of God and your relationship to the kingdom of God is not the length of the list of things you don't do. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy. Number four, Run after things that make for peace and the building up of one another. We build each other up. We should, <laughs> we should walk into the room and everybody should go, oh, peace is here now. Some of us walk into the room and everybody gets the shakes. We walk into the room and we bring And lastly, refuse to tear down the work of God over disputable matters. It just is not worth it. Fourth question. And really, this isn't completely true. So it's up there, so it must be true, but it's not completely true. Because the truth of the matter is, if you're at the judgment seat of God, you're at the judgment seat of Christ, you're a Christian. It's the only people who get to the judgment seat of Christ. Everybody else is going to be judged later. So the fact you're at the judgment seat of Christ is a good sign. If you're there, relax. But the only reason you get to the judgment seat of Christ is because you've accepted the offer of Christ's pardon for your sins. I started the message, fairly close to the start of the message, with Hebrews chapter 9. Let me read it to you again, but I want to add the next verse this time, Hebrews 9, 27, 28. As much as it is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes judgment, unavoidable. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he, many, he died for your sins, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly 
await him. There's a lot of good news there, friends. When Jesus comes the second time and you're standing before him at the judgment seat of Christ, there will not be reference to sin. I think that should have created a little bit more excitement than it did. When you stand before Jesus, there is going to be no reference to sin because Jesus has bore your sin on the cross of Calvary and he defeated it through the resurrection. Your sins are not going to be subject matter. I said your sins are not going to be the subject matter. There will be no reference to sin. Romans chapter 14, I've loved this verse in the last six weeks. Verse 4, who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand for the Lord will make him stand. The Lord is going to make you stand when you stand before him because he has bore the penalty and paid the price for your sins. Hallelujah. But he's still going to hold you accountable for how you lived amongst us. He's going to hold me accountable. So some of us are going to get there and we're not going to have many bragging rights for eternity. Some of us get up to preach and we're far more concerned about whether the people enjoyed it than whether Father was pleased because we rightly divided the word of truth. There's no reward in that. Some of us sing in church so people will notice our good voice. There's no reward in that. It's unto him. unto him. It's where the rewards come from. And so in my readings, and I close with this, I came across one of the most interesting stories in the history of American jurisprudence that I have ever read. It happened in the time when Andrew Jackson was president and John Marshall was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And the story was about a man named George Wilson. George Wilson looked, worked as a railway clerk for the post office. In those days, the rail line looked after the mail and picked up the mail at all the places the train stopped, got it all the central station, sorted it, and dispersed it back down the rail line. And two individuals always served as postal clerk on the rail line. One day George Wilson, I guess, really liked what was accumulating in the mail and he murdered his co-worker. And then he somehow managed to tie himself up real tight in the mailroom, 
make it look like his co-worker had tied him up. They got to the end of the rail line. The people in charge of this, the railway do their walkthrough to make sure nobody's on the train. And they go into the mail room and there's a dead guy there lying in his own blood. And George Wilson is tied up in the corner of the room. And they say, what happened, George? This is a bunch of burglars came in. And they killed my co-worker. And then they tied me up and ran away with all the mail. And the investigators dug deeper into the crevices of the story and... George Wilson got more and more uncomfortable and eventually confessed that he had killed his co-worker. Was arrested, went to court, and was sentenced to death in a federal penitentiary. But somehow the Americans found out that George Wilson was going to die for killing his co-worker. And for some reason they decided this, this wasn't right, this wasn't fair. So they began to circulate petitions and, and talk about it in the, in the local bars, how unfair this was. And, and the thing gained momentum in that northeastern corner of the United States and Pretty soon there was a petition on President Andrew Jackson's desk asking him to pardon George Wilson. And President Jackson, for whatever reason, offered George Wilson a full pardon. The warden of the prison received the notification of the pardon, went to visit George Wilson in his cell and said, I just got this from the president. You've been fully pardoned for murdering your co-worker. And George Wilson said, I don't want the pardon. I want to be hung. And the warden said, you don't understand. He's offering you a full pardon. You're a forgiven, free man. He says, no, I, I don't want the pardon. I want to be hung. Warden didn't know what to do, so he went to the legal system and says, I've got this pardon here. and George doesn't want to take the pardon. And Nobody knew what to do, so it worked its way through the legal system and ended up at the Supreme Court where John Marshall was the Chief Justice. Yesterday, I wrote out John Marshall's uh, decision, which was unanimous with the rest of the justices. Let me read it to you. Relax, it's not that long. A pardon is a paper, the value of which depends upon its acceptance by the person implicated. 
it is hardly supposed that one under the sentence of death would refuse to accept a pardon. But if it is refused, it is no pardon. George Wilson must hang. And George Wilson was hanged in the federal penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas. Friends, I don't know if I've ever read a story that tells the truth of the gospel quite as clearly. All of us have sinned. But Jesus came (laughs) and died for us, took upon himself our sins, defeated the power and penalty of death, sin, and offered every one of us a full pardon. Your sins do not need to be remembered ever again. There never needs to be reference to sin again. But you have to accept the pardon. We are so thankful that you've listened in to the Neighborhood Church Podcast. If you have questions or comments about what you've heard, we would love to hear from you. Go to the podcast description and follow the link to get in touch with us. Everything we do would not be possible without your generosity. If you would like to give, check out that same link in the podcast description. If you have enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and share it with your friends. Thank you again for listening. God bless you.